You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, a little bit of energy. That's good. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, this, uh, if this is your first time, I'm one of the pastors here at the field. My name's Chad Wiles. I get to serve as an elder and a pastor as well as I, I am the director of education and counseling at the Nehemiah Project, which is a counseling ministry to the field. And so I'm excited to be here every once in a while. Pastor Sam asked me to come and speak specifically on a topic uh, from a counseling view and perspective, and so that's what we're going to be doing today. But before I get into the topic of marriage, we're going to look at our monthly memory verse. Hopefully you guys have been doing that with your families. Nothing more important than hiding the Word of God in our hearts, meditating on it day and night as the Word tells us in Psalm 1. And so, repeat after me, we're going to look at 1 John 520. Ready? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So I hope that you are hiding that word in your heart. Work on that with your family. Um, This is something that as we, over the years of our church, month after month, if you imagine 30 years from now, if the Lord gives it to us, how much of his word that we would just know by heart, and that helps us so much in our relationship with him. And so today, we're going to be looking at the subject of marriage, one that uh, impacts us all in some way, right? <clears throat> Oftentimes, though, when we speak about the topic of marriage, we may go about it in a way of looking at the practical or maybe a pragmatic view of how to do it better, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to love one another well, and those things are important. But what we're going to approach today and what we're going to look at today is we're going to go to the foundation of marriage and why God created it in the first place. In order to understand how to live it out rightly, we have to first understand what God's intention was for it and how we are to interact with him through it. And so the reason why marriage is so important is that it is the cornerstone of society as God has created it. We have to understand God's will and understanding of marriage for us to be able to live out in such a way that honors and glorifies Him. And as far as relationships go, it's second only to our relationship with God. Let me be clear, our relationship with God is first and primary. Our identity, our hope, comes from a relationship with Him and because I know some who are sitting here today are thinking, well, I'm single, or maybe I'm not even called to be married, and does this mean that I'm secondary? No, absolutely not. That our first and primary relationship is with God and God alone, and that is where we find our joy, our hope, our identity. And for some, even Paul would say that singleness is a gift and a calling, something to be seen as, as set apart and beautiful. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7. 6 through 7, where he calls it a gift. And he even says, I, I wish more were like me and able to be like me. And so what I don't want to communicate today is that this is a higher calling. But we do need to communicate that it is one of the most important relationships that we will have in our lifetime. All of us are sitting here because someone at some point got together, <laughs> right? <clears throat> so... My goal today, as we look through the subject of marriage, and for some who are doing our marriage workshop at the Nehemiah, this will be a review, because this is going to be week one of that, but this is a a subject that we can't overlook, and so the review will be good, because I don't know about you, I haven't got it all figured out yet. But our goal today is to lay out and understand the theological framework to understand the purpose and meaning of marriage as God has defined it. That's our goal today. 
I liken it to creating a blueprint. If you, if you go to build a house, the architect gives you a blueprint with everything lined out and how to build that house correctly in a way that would be strong and foundational, right? And so oftentimes we approach marriages in a way of not even looking at the blueprints. Uh, we made a joke this weekend at the, the men's retreat that sometimes the carpenters, they just throw the blueprints away and just get after it, right? Sometimes that's how we view our marriages, and we approach it that way, and we do it by how we saw it modeled maybe by, in our own homes or maybe what the world has to say about it. And because of that, a lot of times the foundation and the structure of our home falls apart. So what we want to do today is we want to build that solid foundation to, to lay out the blueprint, if you will, of how God has designed marriage, to understand it in the way that he has created it in the way that would glorify him most. <clears throat> so in order for us to understand God's purpose for marriage, we have to start by understand, understanding his individual purpose for male and female, how he created things in the first place. And then the purpose of the unity and the institute of marriage comes out of his creation and, and how he created us. When we understand the why, it becomes really easy then to begin to operate in the what and the hows of marriage. So the purpose of marriage, our first point today, is that we are designed to reflect God's communicable attributes. We are designed to reflect God's communicable attributes. We're going to be in a lot of scripture today. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Some will be on the screen, but not all. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the middle of, of the row. And if you don't have one at all, take that with you as a gift to be able to study for yourself. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 today, or at least we're going to start there. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. I'll give you a second to get there. I like hearing all the pages rustling. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God created man to be a living being created to embody his communicable attributes. What do I mean by communicable? Well, those are attributes like his creativity, his compassion, his mercy, his order, his work, his love, even in righteousness, he calls us to that. There are some things that we, we can't have, we'll talk about it in a minute, but he has created us to, to image him in the earth. Colossians 3.10 says this, and have, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. James 3, 9, and speaking of the tongue, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's all throughout scripture. That's what we're created for. Our purpose in being created as humans is that we would communicate through our actions, our words, through how we live, a picture of our heavenly Father who has created us. That's how God has designed us. Look how John MacArthur puts it. He says it this way, speaking of man. In his rational life, he was like God in that he could reason and had intellect, will, and emotion. In the moral sense, he was like God because he was good and sinless. However, it did not bestow upon man deity. Right? It did not bestow deity upon man. So we don't have... God's sovereign attribute or his omniscience or his omnipresence, his omniscience being all-knowing or omnipresence meaning being all, all places at all times. Even though in our society right now, one of the things that we see played out in sin is that we want to have all those things. We want to know the future. 
We want to be able to be everywhere at all times and know all things at all times and have control over all things at all times. That is not what you're designed for. That's only God who has those. But as we play this idea out, let's look at how he created Adam and Eve specifically. How are we supposed to image those things? Well, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter two, and let's look at how God specifically designed Adam in this story. Genesis two, we're gonna look at four through 17. He says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he, made, he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and, in the, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that had flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the goat of the land is good. Dedlam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The Bible places a ton of emphasis here on God's hands in the personal way that he created Adam. Because God wants us to understand how intimately and carefully he designed us. See, he is the only one that God forms from the dirt and breathes life into. The rest of creation he speaks into existence. But with man, he took this personal approach. It points to the personal relationship that we have with God that no other creation has. God literally breathes the life into us, making that connection to creating man in his own image, right? He breathes life into us from himself. So this should teach us that man cannot rightly function without being connected to the very God who created him. It is impossible. In our consciousness and in Adam's consciousness, God was everything. He literally breathed the life into him, formed him from the dust. And that should be the same for us. We have to treasure God above everything else in our lives in order to rightly function the way God has designed us. If not, everything gets distorted, everything gets broken and thrown away. We are designed to worship God. That's how we are designed and who we are designed to be. Everything in life is worship. It's what you put your hope in. It's what you put your focus on. It's, it's where you find your hope, your identity. That's what you worship. And God is meant to be the one that we worship in order for us to be rightly aligned in the way he designed us. Speaking of Adam, God gave him the primary responsibility to lead. We see it right here, even in the creation, right? He says, he puts him in the garden and says, work it and keep it. In these two words here, we even see this idea of this kingly ruler, uh, one who would protect the garden and cultivate it and order it in such a way that honored and glorified God. Adam was designed to be a leader. He also was designed to be kind of the priest of the garden too. We see that God gives him the one and only commandment that he must obey right here in the creation. Eve hasn't even come into the picture yet. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This command was given to Adam before Eve was ever created. So we understand that he was also designed to be a priestly character, one who kept the commandments. 
He was to lead, to cultivate, much as a king. And he was to, to worship God and to lead much as a priest. And we see this fully lived out in the person of Jesus Christ, the new Adam. But we see here that it was designed there. And this is going to help give us a lot of framework for when we begin to talk about the role of husband, right? Because we have to understand why God created man in the first place and how he created him. He was to keep the commandments. This is who we're called to be. And God is the pattern of the personhood of man. The personhood of man. This is important because it shows us the dignity of our communal design. This is going to lead into why Eve was created. But God, see how he says that there? He says, let us create man in our image. A plurality. The trinity that we believe in, the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God functions as a, as a community within himself. So if God's going to create us in, our, in his image, he has put within us this need and this desire for community. And that's why we see here in a moment that the Lord says it's not good for man to be alone. If he's going to communicate my attributes, he can't do that in an individual way. See, we live in a world right now, ran by Satan, as Ephesians 2 would tell us, that preaches the opposite to us. It rejects this idea of community and preaches the idea of individualism. I need mine, I need what I want to do within the home, right? As men, a lot of times it's, I want what I want, I need my space, I want to have my stuff within the community, and we'll talk about this throughout these weeks about the church, but we, we live separated from a community of believers. This is not how God has designed it, and we wonder why we have issues, why the structure of our marriage is falling apart, or we're not quite in community. It's because of worship issues. It's because of not living out the design that we were created for. So since we are the image of God's personhood, man cannot be alone because God is a relational plural God within himself, and man's capacity for intimate personal relationships had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled. See, men, it is not about you. And anyone who knows me understands that we're going to hear that a lot in these 10 weeks. It's not about you. Never was, never will be. You certainly can make it about you, but our lives are meant to be about worshiping God and loving and serving others, two grace commandments. That's how Adam was designed in the first place. That was before sin ever entered into the world. Don't have a bad theology that twisted into these, these commands came later. No, no, no. This is how it was always meant to be. To worship and love God first, and then to serve and to lead. That's how man was designed. And the, the desire for personal relationship had to be fulfilled. And enter in Eve. Now, one thing that I hope within this, I know I spent a lot of time showing the importance of Adam. But I hope as we kind of unpack this idea of creation, that especially for you ladies in the room, you would see your beauty and your preciousness in the sight of God. That your role and design as a female is not one that is lesser, but is very specific and God-honoring in the role that he created Eve for. The reason why I wanted to set it up this way is because we saw this this reality of why God created man, and he created him in his image, and he created him in his image, and his personhood had to be that of community, and therefore, God specifically designs Eve. We live in a world that constantly tries to break down the designs that God has created, and, it, and we think that that's going to make it better. But the way that we see things put back together is when we do it in the way God has designed it and honor it as such. There's a power and the dignity of the design of the woman. So let's look at Eve. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, when God designs Eve, he needed to create a helper fit for Adam. And the way that he designs this is very specific. Every other beast of the field was also created out of the ground by God, and Adam shows his dominion as God had given him as he names all the animals. But there wasn't a helper fit for him because there wasn't a helper that was made of him. Once again, hearkening back to God's triune Godhead, right? We see that when Jesus says, as you see me, you see the Father. Different roles, different responsibilities, but both equal in deity. So there wasn't a helper fit for him because there wasn't one made to fit him yet. And God already said that it was not good. But then he makes her from Adam's flesh. That, that word rib there can be translated more in, rightly into flesh. Right? Doing surgery, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We see that he creates and designs because what this does is it makes Eve perfectly harmonious with Adam. They are one flesh. They are made from the same thing. She has the same honor and dignity as one who is created in the image of God. But also perfectly fit to be a helper for Adam. God's designed this very beautifully for how marriage is meant to work. She completed the union that was, that was needed to be completed. She serviced this need perfectly, and of course, God designed it, both spiritually and physically. This, reflecting, this was reflecting the Godhead, just as we talked about with Jesus. And then something more important, or also equally as important, I should say, we can understand that this is good because of that last sentence. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no sin. This union that God had created was perfect. Adam and Eve perfectly represented the Godhead in the way that he designed it to. There's no sin. Everything's working harmoniously. As Jesus would say, as you see me, you see the Father, one should be able to say, as, as you see my wife, you see me, or, or vice versa. There should be a oneness, uh, a unity that both characteristically live out around the Word of God. I should be able to see, as you see Marie, my wife, you see me. She represents me. And that's true. Whether she represents well or not, or whether I represent her well or not, it's still true, right? It's true of you. Once again, it's not about you. Once again, ladies, it's not about you. It's about honoring and glorifying God by how you love and serve one another, and that points to what you believe about God and what you believe about one another. It always does. Our actions always demonstrate our beliefs, 100% of the time. And, but this also shows us and sheds light on, and we're going to dig deeper into, the importance of the sanctity of the covenant of marriage. And we're going to unpack that throughout the weeks. But all the things that we're talking about tonight are going to be the building blocks, the foundation of this house. And I want us to see why these things matter. So our first point is we are designed to reflect God's communicable attributes. Number two, marriage is designed to glorify God by spreading his image throughout the entire earth. So here's the function, if you will, right? We display God's character, we glorify him through that, and God's also designed male and female to spread his image throughout the entire earth. We see that again in Genesis 1, 28, 
where he says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's primary way in the beginning that he designed for his image to spread throughout the earth was through childbearing. We live in a world right now that is trying to even attack the idea of gender. And this is not going to be a place where we have a debate on that, but, but once again, this shows that even in the plumbing, if you will, God designed it perfectly for one purpose, to spread his image throughout the entire earth. Now, in the New Covenant, we do that as well through sharing the gospel, and we will talk about that. But that still remains true. It still remains true that male and female were designed to need one another to fulfill that purpose. And what that looks like is husbands and wives who love God have and raise children to love God who repeat and repeat until the whole earth is full of people who love and serve and honor God. As we think about how we display his attributes, it's much like that of a statue, you know, to give us an example, right? If you go to Chicago, there's a statue of Michael Jordan outside of the basketball arena. You know, if you go to L.A., you'll see a statue of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Kobe Bryant. And these statues reflect images of who they were. Well, in a much greater, grander way, that's how we do that or how we were supposed to do that. And so in our marriages, that is part of how we were designed and what we're meant to focus on and do if the Lord would allow us to have children. It's, we have a responsibility in how we raise our children to understand, know God, and, and live for God as well, to the best of the, the ability that we have, as much as it depends on us. We also understand that only God can change a heart. But we know that it is our goal to disciple and invest in our children in doing that. And so that is the function of marriage rightly, designed before sin entered the world. But we know that not every marriage looks like that. We all have issues and struggles. It's why we're here, right? So what happened? Well, our point number three is sin broke the union between us and God, causing a struggle between husband and wife. Sin broke the union between us and God, which causes a struggle between husband and wife. Let's go to Genesis 3, and we see this play out. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7 says this. Now the serpent, representing Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You should not eat of the fruit, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, the fruit, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we see sin enter into the world through this one act of disobedience. Now, I've heard this talked about and preached, and many say, man, that Eve. <laughs> uh, don't worry, ladies, it's not all your fault. Adam was standing right there. And this shows us how she, Adam had done his job to this point because she knew the command that God had said because, remember, God gave it to Adam before he was created. So Adam had been leading up until that point. But in this moment, we see something that breaks down, that we see break down often, which is the serpent comes to Eve, seeing that maybe she would be easier to deceive possibly, but Adam's standing there the whole time, never speaks up, never protects, never leads. If Adam were fulfilling his duty in the way that he should have, he would have grabbed the serpent by the throat. He would have quoted scripture and killed the snake. And that's what should have happened, but it didn't. And because they believed the lie of the serpent, of Satan, which questioned God, which is how Satan always works, 
and says, did you really say that? You're not going to die, which was a blatant lie. And they eat of it because they wanted to be like God. That's the number one sin, the sin of pride. I want to be like God. This is good. This, this looks good to be like God, right? Open our eyes. It's going to give us this knowledge, this wisdom. And it does. The wisdom of sin comes into the world, the reality that they were naked. Before that, they were naked and unashamed, no sin. Now, shame rolls into the world, sin. And they run and hide and they sow fig leaves. And we see that man and woman will begin to war against Satan. And because of that, sin enters into their hearts and they become ashamed. It's no more bliss. And for the first time in, the, in their existence, the relationship with God is broken. What a horrible day that must have been. That reality of sin. One that we still work through to this day and struggle with to this day. But Genesis 3.15, well, I'll begin in, in verse 8. But Genesis 3.15, look for it, is our first promise of the gospel. So starting in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God already knows. The man said, The woman who you gave me, gave to me, <laughs> Uh, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity, meaning opposition, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So here we see in verse 15 that first promise of the gospel, that there will be enmity, there will be an opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. To give you a quick biblical theology lesson for those who may not know, here's where we see the war between two kingdoms begin. Where you see the seed of the serpent, the war the kingdom of the world is led by Satan. Ephesians 2 tells us about that. And we see those that would follow the way of the world would be a part of that, that seed. That's where we see you know, Jesus call Pharisees a brood of vipers. We see a lot of uh, reference to that. And then we see the seed of the woman represented by the, as the kingdom of God that the, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the king, would crush the head of the serpent. And we see that there's two kingdoms that we must be a part of. We all enter into the kingdom of the world. The question will be, will we enter into the kingdom of God through the Messiah, through Christ? We see this in the New Testament. It explains this more clearly. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 5.18.21 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see here Jesus Christ representing that seed of the woman. He crushes that head of the serpent, where the serpent bruises his heel. That's the cross. But God designs that purposely because it took the cross to take all the wrath of God that our sin deserves. But then he defeats sin and death by raising on the third day, victorious, crushing the head of the serpent, releasing the punishment of death. For those who believe in Christ will have life, not death. But the ways of sin is death. We see this happen here with Adam and Eve because we see death in the physical form that we put out of the garden and one day we'll face physical death. 
but also spiritual death, a separation from God. But God's love always pursued his people, seeking to restore these roles and responsibilities and how he designed it from the beginning. So we see that man and woman will also war against one another in verse 16. In verse 16, we see this proclamation, and this is really going to shed some light on our next few weeks. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We first see that sin turns God's harmonious design of roles and responsibility into a battle of self-will. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is not the type of desire that you'd want. You know, most husbands hear that like, yeah, her desire, I hope, I hope it is for me, you know. It's not what this means. We know that because in, in chapter 4, over in 4 verse 7, when God's speaking to Cain after he, right before he kills his brother Abel, he's, he says here in, chapter, in verse 7, if you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This, this word desire here, in both instances, the same words that's used for it, means to want to overtake, to overcome. What this is talking about is the woman will constantly seek to take the role that God has given to the husband, to lead and there will be this war, constantly seeking to take that place, to do it better, to show that we can do it better, right? And so that second portion there also points to how the husband will rule over the wife. Not in the way, not in the servant leadership role that we saw in Genesis and we, we know is meant for it. No, in a domineering type role. See, throughout all of history, we have seen these struggles played out from this beginning, from the male chauvinist to the extreme mistreatment of women, sexual abuse in all sorts of ways, to men who fail to lead completely, who look more like a grown toddler, if you will, looking for a mom instead of a wife. We see these two extremes, abdicating the throne of leadership and just wanting what they want and mistreating and dominating over. We've seen this all throughout history, all the way up into present day. The same thing for females. This is a lot of the, the catalyst behind feminist movements, lack of submission in the home, wanting to find identity and being seen as the same as the male role. And honor should not come through trying to take the role of the husband, but to be honored as the role that you're given. And this leads to a lack of honor for the role that God has given to the husband. Let me just say this because this goes to both. You have to understand, wives, that your husbands will one day stand before the Lord and give an account to how they led. You should have a respect for the role that God has given them and an honor for it because you honor God. But in that same breath, men, you will stand before God and give an account for how you led. It's time to wake up. You need to understand that the role that God has given you is one given by God. This has nothing to do with your talents, your abilities, who's smarter. I'll tell you right now, Marie Wiles could run circles around me and most of the men in this room when it comes to leading and doing tasks and all these things. Anybody who knows her would agree with me. But by God's grace, she submits to my leadership, not because I'm more talented, not because I'm more gifted, not because I'm even the better leader in all circumstances, because it's what God said. And remember how we started this. God designed male and female. He designed the roles and responsibilities. So our submission to God dictates how we live with one another and how we honor the roles that God has given us. And the honor in our identity as male or female comes ex straight from the identity that God has given you. 
It has nothing to do with what the world says or what you think. We have to stop trying to be wise in our own eyes. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. You have nothing to even begin to think without first fearing the Lord. So we have to stop trying to think what we want to think and figure out what we think and what the, how to make God's word fit into this world. And we need to go straight to the word of God and ask, what do you say, God? And how do we need to repent and move toward what you've designed and created? And trust that God will work in that and honor that. And that's what we're going to be working through throughout these weeks is as we build this blueprint to show what God says. My hope in all this is that God will convict each couple and each individual specifically. That's the reason why I didn't take the approach of let's cover a topic each night. Because when we expose and explain what God's word says, the Holy Spirit inside of you, assuming that it's there, speaks to you specifically and shows you where you're out of line and you repent to come in line with what God says. That's how I know that everyone here can be helped where they're at. Because it's not specific to your struggle. It starts with the heart and the heart of worship. And finding out where you're off. Because here's the deal. We're all off. Me too. The book of 1 John tells you in the first chapter that the pattern of a life of a believer is one who continuously acknowledges the fact that we have sinned and 1 John 1, 9 says, but when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the two bookending verses both say, if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar and the truth is not in you. So just know you have sin to deal with, just like I do. But the word of God helps us and sanctifies us and draws us to and aligns us with his will for our lives. Which brings us to our final point is that the gospel restores God's original design for marriage. And this is the hope that we get to dig into for the rest of these few weeks. We started in the beginning and we got to see the history a little bit of what happened up until present day. And the place in redemptive history that we live is post-resurrection. Jesus has come, fulfilled the law, fulfilled the need for our sin to be dealt with and gives us grace and makes us his children through faith, through faith in, the, in his son Jesus. And we can begin to relive out in Christ the roles in the way God has designed it because of Jesus and be sanctified in the truth. So Ephesians 5, and we're, the book of Ephesians is one that we will turn to a lot throughout this time. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 15. Because it's important for us to see context. It'd be easy to jump straight to the husband and wife verses, right? But let's look at what comes before that. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So right there is just a call to the Christians, right? And then, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, the gospel redeems and restores the original purpose of marriage. And we glorify God through mutual submission. There's no room for pride in the church. That's why we wanted to read the context. But because before we even get to husbands and wives, and there's so much debate over wives submitting and husbands leading and all this stuff. Well, as a Christian, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we submit to God, we submit to one another. And within the body, within the home, in the marriage context, wives, we submit to our own husbands. Why? As unto the Lord. You do it because you're worshiping God, not because he deserves it. Because, wives, I understand, there's a lot of times he does not deserve it. I understand that truth. There's many times I do not deserve to be, to be submitted to. I'm not loving or kind or I'm angry or I'm sinning in some way that I need to repent of. But my wife doesn't submit to me because I'm a good leader or I make her feel good. She does it as unto the Lord out of worship because she respects what God designed and created and understands that God has called me to be the leader whether I want to be or not. And I'll be held to that standard before the Lord, not her, not you. And then husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. If you understand your Bible, you understand that's a mouthful. To love your wife as Christ loved the church, there's no room for a domineering, chauvinistic, egotistic leader. Anybody who has that idea and uses the scripture is using it out of context and is sinful and egregious to the Lord. But to be a servant leader, as we see Christ love the church, to lead, to guide, to teach, to sacrifice, even unto death, even when we were his enemies. So you don't love your wife like Christ loved the church and lead her because she's easy to lead or because she's loving and kind. You do it because you're honoring God. And how are you supposed to love her? And this is probably going to be the indictment for all of us because we can all stand to grow in this way. But to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. The word of God. Husband, your primary way of leading is knowing and teaching the word of God in your home. You are to be the leader in essence, a pastor of your home. So if you yourself aren't walking with God and you don't know your Bible and that's on the back burner for you, you have no way to lead your wife as Christ loved the church. You're not even equipped to do so. To be a servant leader in the way the Bible calls us to be takes humility, not pride. Humility before God. To love and submit to your husband takes humility, not pride. To worship God and have no other gods and to love one another as ourselves, the two greatest commandments. That is the only chance that we have. But in doing that, we see God sanctify and grow and deepen our relationship with him and with one another. If you come in here tonight or online and you're struggling and you feel like, I don't know how we're going to put these pieces back together. With man, there's no hope, but with God, there's always hope. As we submit to and repent of our sin and seek his glory over our desires, then you have the chance to draw together in the way that God has called you to. We often in counseling will draw this triangle. So imagine it with your mind. Always put God up at the top and then draw two lines down to the husband's name and the wife's name. 
and when both and, and the arrow pointing up. And when both are seeking the Lord primarily first, what happens as you go up that line? The middle gets closer. And I know it's a cheesy illustration, but it is a picture of what happens when you pursue the Lord individually and live out your role faithfully, you will draw together intimately, spiritually, emotionally, physically. You want to see that fixed? Fix your worship first. And that's our goal, to help you with that. And so to get that started, we're going to be end each session with some questions. Number one, is your goal in marriage to first glorify God? I know that seems like a broad question, but be honest with that question. Is your goal, first goal in marriage to glorify God? If it's not, that has to be fixed before we can do anything else. Number two, in what ways do you need to repent to God? For some of you, I understand that praying together may be awkward. Maybe you don't do it very often. Well, it's okay, we're gonna get awkward because it needs to happen. And last, in what ways do you need to repent to your spouse? So after you repent to the Lord, how do you need to specifically, not generally, specifically repent to your spouse? You want to begin to clear the air and work on healing? It starts with repentance, humility, and worshiping and honoring God. Father God, we come before you humbled. God, as I preach this message, as I see your scriptures, I see how I fall short constantly in my heart and constantly in my actions. And God, I know for all of us, we feel that way. But we are thanking you for your son, Jesus, who took all of our sin, all of the penalty of sin, all of the wrath that we deserve on the cross. And for those who would put our faith in Christ, would be forgiven and made new and made children of yours. And you give us much grace. You tell us in your scriptures, God opposes the proud, but you give grace to the humble. God, give us grace as we humble ourselves before you and repent. And I pray that this would be the beginning for many of true healing, of new marriages that reflect your purposes and give you much glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.